Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. This month our panel discusses Breaking Bad, a TV show with science at its core. Chemist Dave Smith and psychologist Julian Boone delve into the science behind the show, while screenwriter Paul Verrar discusses the challenge of representing science on screen. Thanks, Martin. And if anyone wants to do their own name like this, if you just Google Breaking Bad Name Generator, you can make your own name like that. It's great. And that's what I spend most of my time doing, is, is, is doing things like that. So when the, when the Royal Institution said, is there's there um, a topic you'd like to curate an event on, usually when I've done that in the past, because I present programs about psychology on Radio 4, usually I do something to do with psychology. But then I had another idea, and I said to Martin, what about doing something on the science of Breaking Bad? And, and couldn't believe my luck when an email came back about a second later saying, yes, definitely, let's do it. So um, it seems that um, we're not the only people who like Breaking Bad, judging by the... Um, uh, packed house we have um, here tonight. So we have an hour and a half to devote to the joy of, of Breaking Bad and discussing it. And I expect there will be spoilers, so if you haven't yet seen what I like to call Series 5B, then um, just close your ears at any uh, moments where that might come up. So we have tonight um, a chemist, uh, Dave Smith, a forensic psychologist, Julian Boone, and a scriptwriter, Paul Virag, to investigate the science of Breaking Bad. And there will also be plenty of time for you to ask them um, questions as well. Um, and so the plan for the evening is, is two short talks, and then I'll be um, interviewing our, our third panellist. Um, then we'll have um, the questions, and that's your moment to ask everything you've ever wondered about the science of Breaking Bad. And there is plenty of it, as, as we'll discover. So first up is Dave Smith, who's Professor of Chemistry at York University. And his students are very lucky because he even uses Breaking Bad to teach them chemistry and told me earlier that in their, uh, the first year exam even had a question about Breaking Bad. Now, even I could have probably um, done quite well on that one. So let me hand over to you, um, Dave. Thank you very much. Thanks, Claudia. It's, uh, yeah, it's really great to be here in the Royal Institution. You know, this is where people came and talked about the discovery of the electron. And I'm going to talk about why Walter White's crystal meth was blue. Um, I'm not sure whether it's quite as important, but it's perhaps as fascinating, I guess. Um, and there's so much science I could choose to talk about, and I'm sure a lot of it will come up in the questions later on. So I'm going to focus my short presentation on like the core of Breaking Bad, which is making the drugs, basically. Now, don't worry, you're not going to walk away fully kitted up, ready to go and make your own drugs. You'll be disappointed to know. But I'm going to explain what was told about drug synthesis in Breaking Bad, how accurate it is. Is it true that his crystal meth was the purest in the world? And we're going to think about some of these things. So this is a picture of crystal meth taken off the DEA website. They have these things. And you can see this is nice, pure crystal meth. It's not blue. right? It's a see-through, colorless crystal. And as chemists, just out of interest, how many people have any chemistry knowledge in the audience? About... A third to a half, that's good. So you'll all be very familiar with this kind of thing. This is how we as chemists see the world in terms of molecular structures. So every single molecule within this crystal of crystal meth, if it's 100% pure, is this molecule. And these bonds, every point represents a carbon atom. The N represents a nitrogen atom. The H represents a hydrogen atom. And this is how we think of the world. And that seems really complicated when you first come across it. But really, as chemists, we just look at these things as pictures. And a lot of the time, we play spot the difference with, with molecules. We just recognize shapes and structures like you would as a two-year-old. Right? So this is crystal meth. Why does it work? It's just worth putting that in context. Why is crystal meth a decent drug? 
and it's because of your brain. Uh, decent is not a recommendation, <laughs> right? Um, effective, whatever word you want. Right, so chemistry in the brain is very complicated, but there's a few very simple molecules that control quite a lot of it. And if you're playing spot the difference and you look at these molecules, you begin to see they look quite similar to crystal meth. If we go back, crystal meth has a ring. It's called a benzene ring. Carbon, carbon, nitrogen. Right? Dopamine, which deals with all the reward in your brain. A benzene ring, carbon, carbon, nitrogen. This compound, norepinephrine, which is arousal, Benzene ring, carbon, carbon, nitrogen. Right? Euphoria comes from serotonin. This is a kind of benzene ring. Um, the chemists will know what I mean by that. Carbon, carbon, nitrogen again. They all do certain things in your brain. They dock into certain receptors in your brain, and they make you feel good that you've done something, aroused by it, or euphoric. And crystal meth acts on all of those three pathways. It makes you feel rewarded. That's why it's an addictive drug. It makes you feel aroused. That's why it's stimulating. And it makes you feel somewhat euphoric, which is kind of why people like to take it. So that's why crystal meth works as a drug. And it's important to just think about that because it matters when we think about how Walt goes and synthesizes the crystal meth. So this is his first synthesis. This is very easy to do. You can all pop out to the pharmacy and do this one in principle. Um, except you need a few tricks along the way, of course. Um, I'm going to stand up. I just find it's a bit easier standing up. So this is Sudafed, a decongestant that you can buy in, well, you could buy in pharmacies. It's increasingly difficult to get because of the show. And it's got pseudoephedrine in it. Um, and pseudoephedrine is this molecule, right? Benzene ring, carbon, carbon, nitrogen. It's looking pretty like one of our drug-like molecules. And if you compare it to crystal meth, which is here, and you play spot the difference, you can see there's only one thing you need to do to pseudoephedrine to turn it into crystal meth, and that's remove this OH group here and actually replace it with a hydrogen. And that's really easy to do with the reagents that Walt uses in the very first series of crystal meth. He uses hydroiodic acid, and he uses red phosphorus. He comes up with some other nice tricks that he uses red phosphorus for as well. Um, and this combination of things, you get the iodine from here that replaces this OH, and then the combination of the red phosphorus and the acine, acid allows that to be removed and replaced with the hydrogen. And it's a pretty simple synthesis. It's kind of the classic way that many people would try to make crystal meth. And of course, around the world, people have caught onto this. And increasingly, Sudafed is now not made with pseudoephedrine in the USA. It's very hard to get pseudoephedrine in these products. They use a weaker decongestant. And people in America especially can complain that decongestants don't work properly anymore. And that's because of meth synthesis, basically. It's just too easy to do this. And there's a lot of patents around making it almost impossible to take a pseudoephedrine tablet and turn it into crystal meth. Lots of formulation to try and stop people doing what Walt and Jesse were doing in series one. There's a lot of really active science in that area. So that was his first synthesis. Really simple. Just lop off one bit of a molecule, really. The problem is you can't buy a lot of pseudoephedrine, if any, anymore. But in his first series, his problem was supply of the Sudafed. And if you want to be a big-time drug dealer, you just can't get enough of the stuff. Um, so he needed to move beyond pseudoephedrine. And there was a key compound that allowed him to do this, which becomes a real running theme through the show. And that's methylamine, methylamine. And the reason methylamine is important, if you look at the structure, it's a nitrogen and a carbon very simple molecule, just got six atoms in it, NH2 and a CH3 here, 
And all we're doing is we're, okay, basically, it's like doing Lego, right? You're plugging that NH2CH3 onto something to make crystal meth. That's how we do synthesis as chemists. We look at the molecule we want to make, we break it down into little bits, and we try and stick them together. So that's all that Heisenberg is doing here. He's seeing that methylamine is an important fragment and then thinking, how can he use that to stick it to the other bits of the molecule? Okay. So this was how, of course, they started with methylamine. They got a little bit more ambitious in their quantities as time went by, uh, as those of you that have watched through to the final series as will know. Um, so we're going to look at his second synthesis, and we're going to see how he did it. So it was a two-step synthesis, and we're going to talk it through. And actually, I'm going to demonstrate this. We'll sort of demonstrate this. I can't obviously make crystal meth. So the closest we can come is to use some models. And obviously, I need Jesse to help me, because if I'm Heisenberg, there has to be a Jesse somewhere. So I need a non-chemist. I guess they have to be under 25 somewhere. Oh, under 30 will do. Jess, oh, well, that's perfect. It has to be. It was destiny. It was destiny. Come on, Jess. Come on. Now, it's very simple. You've got the same molecules as me. There's no trick here. So this is your first molecule. This is your starting material. This is what's provided. Uh, eventually, it's the stuff that comes in the drums with the little bumblebee on. Uh, it's phenylacetic acid. It's a ring. It's a carbon, it's a carbon, and it's what we would call a carboxylic acid on the end. So these red things on our models are oxygen atoms, okay? okay. The blacks are carbons, and the whites are hydrogens. Okay. Now, this is how easy it is to do the synthesis. The first thing that Walt wanted to do was take off the OH group, okay. right? So this is the red and the white, the oxygen and the hydrogen. Yeah. So this one here, just pull it off because that's not needed in crystal meth, right? And he wanted to replace that with a CH3 group. So there's your CH3 group, and you just put it back into the place. There we go. Very simple. Now, actually, this is probably the craziest reaction in Breaking Bad, and I think they did it deliberately. There is no way that anybody making this drug would want to do this reaction with thorium dioxide under the conditions in a sealed tube at 450 degrees like Walter White. Thorium dioxide is probably one of the most difficult chemicals to source in the whole of Breaking Bad. It's a radioisotope, so it's a radioactive element. Um, and I, I, That's the one thing I'm not sure about. Where he was getting his thorium dioxide from, I don't know. <laughs> and I'm pretty convinced that when the screenwriters put it in, they did it because that was the most difficult approach for people to actually copy to synthesize crystal meth, because they just wouldn't really be able to source that ingredient. And they never really talked about it. It was briefly done in one episode, and then it was never mentioned again. And everything focused on the remaining step, which is the one I've just talked about, attaching the methylamine. Okay, now this is a bit trickier, okay. right? So first of all, what happens when we attach the methylamine is this other oxygen disappears. Okay. So you have to pull that off. That's quite hard. Even I can't do it, and I'm a chemist. <laughs> right. So the oxygen's gone, and then all we want to do is put in place the methylamine. Good stuff. Now, you'll need a bond to help you do this. So just click that into one of your positions. Perfect. And then... You're going to split the methylamine, and you'll attach the nitrogen onto one of those. Onto there. Yep. And the hydrogen in the other place. 
It's as simple as that. And I'll do exactly the same. Let me just see what you've done. Got to check, you know, that your students yeah. do things right. Walt <laughs> ends up checking Jesse an awful lot, really. Um, and you can understand why. So. Oh, I pulled my bits off wrong. Right. So you make the molecule, and it's as simple as that, right? So I can make it, Jesse can make it, anybody can make it. Now, there's a problem with this synthesis that's not mentioned when it first comes up. It's obviously blue, which is a problem we'll come back to, right? But the other problem is there's two different forms of this compound, which are mirror images of one another, right? So if we look at the molecule, if you get your benzene ring in a nice flat plane, and your carbon coming off it, and that carbon going back, right. you can see that we've made here the same molecule as one another, because my nitrogen's on the right, and your nitrogen's on the right. Mm -hmm. okay? If I'd attach my bonds the other way around, my molecule would be a perfect mirror image of your molecule. My nitrogen would be on the left, mm -hmm. my hydrogen would be on the right. Now, that might seem like a small thing, but my molecule is now different to her molecule, <coughs> completely different, because this molecule can never be exactly the same. They're mirror images of one another, like a pair of hands. right? So my meth will have a different activity to your meth. The reason for that is because of this. When the meth goes into your brain, it interacts with the receptor, and the receptors in your brain are like this glove. So if I've got the right-handed meth, because yeah. I'm the official chemist, my meth will fit the glove perfectly. Right. If you've got the left-handed drug, which you have because you're Jesse, your left hand can't fit the receptor. So it can't activate the receptors in the brain that have the effect that it needs. So the fact this drug exists as mirror images mm -hmm. is a real problem. Right? So thanks to Jess for making the wrong mirror image. So this is Heisenberg's problem. He does the synthesis, and when he adds the final hydrogen, it's not really fussy about which of the mirror images it makes. The molecule can be either way around. The hydrogen can end up in either place, and you get two mirror images of this drug. And they have two different effects. And the way that he describes his synthesis, you'll have 50% of this one and 50% of that one. So his meth, as described in series two, will not be the purest meth ever, it will be 50% pure. It will be 50% crystal meth and 50% Vicks inhaler, because that's what the other enantiomer of crystal meth is. Jess made Vicks inhaler, I made crystal meth. That's why you need to know what you're doing to be a chemist. So maybe this is at the heart of why his crystal meth is blue. Maybe this is part of the answer. Maybe he had a secret, enantiomerically pure way, as he calls it, the way of making just the right-handed form that fitted in the right-handed glove. Maybe that's what he could do that made the crystal meth blue. So I went and looked through the scientific literature to see what's known about this reaction and how it can be done. And it can be done. You can do a so-called asymmetric reductive amination. That's what the reaction's called. That means you make an asymmetric molecule, a right-handed molecule, let's say, with an amine, that's your methylamine, 
uh, under reducing conditions, and it can be done on exactly the kind of compound we're looking at here. And this paper is a very interesting one, 2013, so we're what? We're a good way through Breaking Bad at this point, somewhere in season, <laughs> season four, actually, where Walt is pretty much sat in that room saying his reduction is stereospecific, and the catalyst that they use here is iridium-based. Right? And iridium famously was named after Iris, the goddess of the rainbow, because its salts take on many different colors, depending on factors like what anions they're present with and what state they're in. And it's perfectly plausible that a tiny trace amount of iridium catalyst is left in his crystal meth at the end of the process. He'd still have 99.99% purity, and a little bit of iridium left over could be giving it that blue color. So I reckon Walt was probably an even better chemist than I'd given him credit for. Um, I did start thinking about how would you remake Breaking Bad. You know, I'd love to see a season two on British TV, so let's pitch it, seeing as we've got a script writer here. Um, <laughs> there's all these other designer drugs, of course. All Breaking Bad deals with is crystal meth. Think of the chemistry that you can do just by tweaking the structure. And this is what actual drug designers do, and it's not a good thing, right? So what they do is they say, oh, this is crystal meth. What we can do is take off this hydrogen on the ring, and put an oxygen on there. Oh, there's a new drug, probably not illegal anymore because we've put an oxygen on there. Let's sell that to the public and see what effects that has on their brains and work out 10 years later whether it was good or bad. And that's genuinely what is happening with many of these drugs that come in as kind of legal, legal highs and so on and so forth. And there's a whole range of chemistry that you could explore there with some evil genius trying to find the next super drug that will be even more effective. Um, on which note, I'm happy to answer lots of questions on lots more aspects of science and Breaking Bad, but that's what I want to say about the drugs. <laughs> Brilliant, thank you. Thank you so much for that. So there'll be lots of things, I'm sure, that other, other bits of science that people can think of that they want to ask you about later. But I'm just going to ask you a couple of, a couple of quick ones now. So in the first series... Uh, Walt and Jesse dispose of that body in the bath using acid and they go and buy the stuff from the DIY shop and the bath falls through the floor. Yeah. Would that happen? Yeah. Uh, well, that wasn't a yes to the answer <laughs> of the question. HF, actually, it's a really interesting acid. It's not a very good acid, actually. right? So you think HF must be this scary, really strong acid. It's one of the weakest acids that's out there. right? So if you know about hydrochloric acid, Hydrochloric acid has a billion times more acidity than hydrofluoric acid. So on that basis, you'd think hydrofluoric acid was pretty benign, right? Um, actually, hydrofluoric acid is one of the compounds that I'm most scared to handle, and I certainly would be wearing all this equipment to handle hydrofluoric acid. But it's not because it's very acidic. Um, it's because of all the fluoride in there. So uh, it's really dangerous to living chemists more than anything else, because if you spill it on your skin it doesn't burn you because it's not really so acidic and it's not got so much H plus ions, you know, so much protons, the H from the hydrofluoric acid. That's what the measure of acidity is. Because the fluoride really holds on to the hydrogen and so you don't get a lot of that acid burning into your skin. You don't feel it, but it does go through your skin. And then the fluoride holds on to things so strongly and it particularly loves calcium out of your bones and so it pulls all the calcium out of your bones. It's hugely toxic and a relatively small amount uh, will kill you. So there was a guy who had, I don't know about, this much hydrofluoric acid, spilt it over his lap, a chemist, went and jumped in a swimming pool and a shower and showered himself off. 
and 15 days later was dead because he hadn't done anything to remove the fluoride that pulled all the calcium out of his bones and toxified him and killed him. It's not what I choose for eating up bodies because it's pretty slow at eating up a body because it's not so acidic. It is very destructive to bodies, particularly living ones, and it's one of the scariest acids out there to living chemists. I think if I was wanting to dispose of a body, I shouldn't say. <laughs> no, I probably shouldn't tell a room full of people how to dispose of a body, uh, but I probably wouldn't use an acid at all. But hydrofluoric acid is not a bad bet for a, for a seriously scary acid that you want to use. Um, would it, it does what it eats through glass. It's used in glass etching, so it eats through glasses and ceramics and things like that. That's its industrial application. A dilute solution etches glass. Um, and so it would eat through all the ceramics. If your pipe works, got ceramics in it, it'll all get eaten through. A ceramic bath will get eaten through, and then, of course, it can potentially fall through the floor if the wood has got damaged by the acid as well. Mm. So that, so that much is realistic. It would ultimately eat through a body, but probably not in the period of a day or two like it does in the show. And what about uh, another one? What about the scene where uh, Walt goes to see um, Tuco, the, uh, one of the dealers, and shows him what he, what he thinks is his crystal meth, and then he picks it up and throws it across the room and makes explosions happen. Do you know how to do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I do. Um, Walt chooses a way that fits in with some of the other chemistry that he's been doing in the show, actually. And this is Tuco, right, uh, looking at some of Walt's meth. Um, and the chemistry is kind of neat. It's this mercury fulminate. Now, if you want to make any explosives, whatever they may be, you need to make something small and solid that wants to make a lot of gas, right? Because you get a huge expansion in volume. And particularly if you've somehow compressed that, put it in a little metal canister or something like that, you get a huge increase in volume. That's the basis of any explosion, right? So if you look at the equation of the decomposition of mercury fulminate, you make carbon monoxide and nitrogen gas and one equivalent of this makes three equivalent of gas. So lots and lots of gas from a little bit of solid, and that's the basis of any explosive. And mercury fulminate is known as a good explosive. It's contact sensitive. It's heat sensitive. So it, it will explode. It will also generate mercury vapor, which is not so nice. But if you're trying to kill people, you're probably not worried about it being not so nice anyway. Um, all explosives work on the same principle. Peroxides make lots of oxygen gas. So that's the thing that was used on the tube bomb. Azides make lots of nitrogen gas, the kind of thing they look for when they scan your luggage at airports. They all make lots of gas. Could it be controlled to such an extent that he could throw it, be there, the explosion would be sufficiently controllable, localizable, that you could do precisely what you want? No. That would be the real issue. It would be the control over that. There's a one in a hundred chance that you get the control you need. But the compound has exactly the properties that are shown. But the level of control by throwing it is, is hard to judge. And the mm. quantities would be hard to get right. Yeah. Well, I've got more, but I'll save some of and those for later. I, mean, I, think, be ones that I think it's worth saying, actually, that yeah. the science in Breaking Bad is spectacularly good. Yeah. And when we get down to quibbling about it, it's generally about little details. Would it have been quite as fast as they said? Would it have really been quite like this? Would it have been as controllable as that? But it's all founded on really solid science. And the they had a chemist program. advising them, didn't they? They did, yeah, now president of the American Chemical Society, actually. Yeah. So <laughs> it shows that it can get you places, I guess. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, hold, hold any um, questions you have for other questions about the, uh, the chemistry or, or other science bit in mind. Because next we're going to move on to the psychology of, of Walter White. And we've witnessed there, uh, you know, one man's 
moral or, or, or should it be immoral um, journey. So next we're going to hear from um, Dr. Julian Boone, who's a forensic psychologist who lectures at Leicester University. Um, and he spent many years uh, working with the police on, on very serious crimes such as murder and, um, and still does. Um, and he's even someone who makes breaking bad puns in the, the titles of his journal papers, which I, which I like. In 2008, he published a paper called Detecting Faking Bad on the Good Johnston Suggestibility Scales, which is a good title there. But what's exciting is, until we um, uh, asked him to come and, and talk tonight, he'd never seen Breaking Bad. So we set him the task of watching it for us. And so for weeks now, he's had the joy of watching back-to-back -back episodes. Um, <laughs> Thank you for doing that. Um, so I'm dying to know what he, uh, what he made of it and what, what take he has on Walt's moral disintegration and um, how typical a criminal he is or not. So let me hand over to Julian. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Um, well, thank you for that, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, as they say in the music hall, clap now. You may not feel like doing so later. Uh, uh, thank you also to Claudia and Martin for inviting me. But they hadn't told me the standard of my fellow speakers and contributors, nor the erudite nature of the audience. I'd have chickened out and not come. <laughs> so here we go. Um, if I may, I'll stand over here because I can see what's going on. But if you really want to see my handsome face, I will turn around a couple of times. Okay. So what I've really been asked to do, at the core of it, is to say, can someone normal become really nasty and wicked? And in so doing, I'm going to touch on personality profiling aspects, human motivational aspects, and just to say how much of this is potentially relevant from those episodes, and I have indeed watched many, many episodes, uh, augmented by my daughter who has an encyclopedic knowledge of the um, series and has been answering her daddy's questions and she's in the audience to help me out if I get stuck. <laughs> However, uh, and just to see how truly authentic it is to real-life psychology. And we'll start nice and simply, if we may. <laughs> Going up the way there, we see old Ma Teresa of Calcutta, who devoted her life to helping the destitute um, children of Calcutta. She got a Nobel Prize for it, etc., etc. And these girls lived contemporaneously, roughly. In other words, they had the same sort of lifespan. And yet, we can go to Myra Hindley down there, who had the most incredible advance into the depths of depravity, having not started out that way, but been educated by uh, that reptile, um, Brady, uh, to become, to be sexually excited at children being tortured to death um, and recording the um, torture sessions to the point where she would play them over and over again with Brady. How can we have two such women going in such totally different directions. Now, it may surprise those of you who um, have not got a background in psychology, but most psychology is profoundly uninterested in personality. <laughs> but I've never been afraid of being different, and I am absolutely obsessed with psychology, and particularly personality. To me, it's the cornerstone. So we all start with birth, we all start with death, how is it some go so far up the way and some go so far down the way? Most of us somewhere in between. 
Well, let's look a bit more at the polarity of the development of the thing. I have this effect on women, I should forewarn you. <laughs> Usually they last another couple of minutes, anyway. Okay, um, so going up the slope in its broadest brush terms is self-actualization characterized by positivity and biophilia, which simply means a love of life and all aspects of loving of life. And going down the way, it is self-gratification, characterized by negativity and necrophilia. Now, for most people, necrophilia means having it off with dead people, or frigor mortis, as I somewhat rudely call it. But it isn't. It's the love of things negative. It's more than that. It's a load of uh, things that get synthesized into the term. Now, so far, we just putting that in broad brush terms for people who aren't in the psychological loop. Were we doing this for the forensic masters group, we'd be spending three weeks on it, and we'd be looking at the subsections of self-actualization, and what it says there is life thwarting, but you'll also see it says necrophilus at the bottom. One is totally serving society, trying to grow as an individual, trying to grow with the rest of humankind, trying to, oh, you can see all the positive characteristics on the right-hand side at the top, and then you see the life-thwarting ones, which are all the negative ones. And as I say, it takes us three weeks, and I've got 15 minutes, so I won't, won't be doing that. But your bottom line there, literally, is power orientation is personal, and it comes to you. Now, the question we've been asked today is, how can someone who is really self-actualizing up to a point suddenly descends to the life-thwarting one. While we're here, I'll just draw your attention to what are known as avoidance stratagem. And this includes people who can't face reality for whatever reason. They don't embrace negativity, they don't embrace, embrace positivity. And again, this is a very long and involved thing. But this box here on the left is where you've got the character Jesse, I reckon who finds it much better to be a very low achiever, to just get um, intoxicated with drugs, hang out with the wrong crowd, and doesn't really have much ambition about anything. Very different from our friend, um, Walt Senior. So let's try to go for this. So where's Walt Senior from those many episodes, not exclusive, I fully confess, that I have seen? Well, when we first encounter him, he's a chemistry teacher, um, and he's inspiring to the students. It's very obvious that he's enthusiastic about his teaching, and teaching is, by its very essence, a biophilous thing to do. You're bringing other people, you're expanding their minds, you're expanding your own minds, etc. But he's only really two-thirds up that slope. He's not fully self-actualized. He has the magical idea um, of this, that, and the other, and then it gets capitalized on by other people. Instead, he just wants to be a family man and be a teacher and winds up working in the car wash um, and gets put upon, etc., etc., until the devastating blow comes. And the devastating blow is, of course, that he's going to die from cancer. There's nothing they can do about it. Now, this leads to him going to point two on the line down the way there. But what we're really interested in today is how do you get from point two to far, far down the slope there. 
When he gets to point two, and he's in the basement of I think Jesse's house, and he's strangling to death the young kid who's the drug dealer uh, because he'd kept a shard of glass. He's right on the start of a learning curve. This is very common, this sort of thing. Right on the start of a learning curve. He had faith that this kid was actually going to be okay. Uh, and then he finds that when the dish gets smashed, for those of you who are aficionados of the show, there's one piece missing, and the kid has managed to stick it around his person, and he says, you were going to stick me with this. And so, with great reluctance, overcomes himself. He's on the starward slope. And by the way, the further down the slope you go, the less you are amenable to any form of remedial therapeutic uh, intervention. In analysing this, I just want to point out some stuff that is a profiler of now 25 years. No two cases are ever the same. No two offenders are ever the same. No two offences are the same, even when the offender has a broadly similar MO. And for those who aren't familiar with that term, MO stands for modus operandi. It means the particular way they go about um, uh, their crimes. They have a particular pattern for their crimes. And every case needs to be individually analysed so that you can have two cases with 99 points exactly the same, one different, and it can have dramatically different implications for how to understand the motivation of the offender and what's going on and the likelihood that they're going to re-offend, etc. And that finally, new modus operandi are continually emerging. We live in a very technically uh, advanced day, age, as you, I dare say you know far better than I, um, and we have to constantly be um, of the view that they're getting increasingly forensic aware um, and that they're using increasing technology to stay one step ahead of the uh, police authorities and old codgers like myself. So how authentic? Well... When we're starting off, the portrayal of Walt Senior's initial early motives is actually pretty true to form. What we've got is someone who's operating in desperation, they have inexperience in their modus operandi, and they're inexperienced with dealing with the criminal fraternity. Hence, when they find themselves out in the desert early on, they very quickly come unstuck, and that they are entering an extremely steep learning curve. So a typical case in this country might be someone who's just discovered that they've been diagnosed as HIV positive stroke AIDS, and then they uh, are devastated by it, and they've never had a criminal background at all, but that they don't want their family to go out of a house and home, they want the mortgage paid for, so they send some uh, letter off to, um, I don't know, Tesco, Sainsbury's or whatever, and say, unless you pay me £400,000, uh, I'm going to put uh, AIDS-infected semen in the sausages, and I'm going to let everybody in the world know about it, that you ain't going to be selling any sausages, baby. Um, so they do this sort of thing. Believe me, it's very well understood, and uh, if anybody's in that situation, uh, don't do it in this country, because I'm around and I'll know. Okay, so... <laughs> Okay, furthermore, once we get to the next bit, the pattern and behaviour of motivation over time is not so common. That is going from that earlier diagram put up there, going from point two to point three. That is not so common. Once our AIDS-infected individual has got his £400,000 or her £400,000, then 
when we've done that, they just go back to a normal lifestyle as best as possible. That would be the typical pattern. But we always have to remember that um, uh, continually there are new uh, modus operandi coming up and there's always going to be new ones. Um, so to go from a biophilus lifestyle, which I've argued largely uh, Walt Celia was before the onset of this uh, case, uh, to go to um, negativity and begin to enjoy, if not enjoy, embrace negativity for its own sake is unusual. But it's not impossible. So we have to answer, why isn't it impossible? And we're getting close to the end now. Well... It might be this, as I say, a whole new pattern of offending that we've not come across before. It could be an anal retentive. And I know we all use the term, oh, he's anal, she's anal, and all this stuff. But in fact, anal retentive is a very much more complicated uh, syndrome um, than most of us realize. But one of the things they absolutely cannot stand is perceived slighting unfairness or injustice towards them. And if it's a major injustice towards them and they can't do anything about it, they tend to get very, very angry and then they can start planting bombs all over the place and this sort of thing. It can be an extreme reaction. The third possibility is that he begins to get a buzz from it. Now, I realise this is going to be extremely difficult for you people to believe, but I did have a former career in motor racing, and I did have a <laughs> former career, of, not career, of, of, a hobby of jumping out of aircrafts, of, of skydiving. Um, I wouldn't like to try it nowadays, now I'm old, but, um, that, but the thing is, once you've done that, you ain't going to go back and start putting carrots on the allotment. It's just too exciting. <laughs> so... He's got an interesting job as a school teacher. He's got an unsatisfactory situation in the car wash. Um, but he's going to get something out of this. He's in the big league now. And that once that's there, uh, we heard the phrase addiction from Professor Smith earlier on, but once you've got that in there, you're just not going to go back. There is, of course, an alternative. <laughs> that it's got sort of all to do with reality, and it makes a damn good storyline. But then, of course, that just might be an old psychologist who's been in the game rather too long, um, and that could be very cynical. But here, it's pointless me uh, um, just speculating on that particular angle before we have the lovely Paul here who's going to be an expert on that, and he'll be able to answer it. Thank you for your attention. <laughs> Thank you, that was fascinating. I have, to, I have two things I want to ask you. One, I think it, it's interesting, this idea that maybe it was for the buzz that, that he did it, yes. you know, and that he never seemed to get to enjoy any of the money he made. I mean, he never, ever seemed to have a nice time. He was, you know, on the run half the time and in, in terror other times or stuck in that, stuck inside in that lab, and he never seemed to get to enjoy it. Well, that, that would seem to fit in very well with what I was saying, with him being atypical to the usual person who's just had devastating news. Um, and the, the money, even though, if I've understood it rightly, he eventually had a huge amount of money, um, that was no longer it. The activity, the modus operandi, was a feed in itself for his um, ego. And I think he said something like, uh, uh, I won and then uh, went on to sort of say, I did it for me, in the very later series. So you're beginning to see there that it's, it's, it has a feed for his own psychology. And have you ever come across anyone quite like Walt in your 
career as a forensic psychologist. The nearest... Or possibly in your motor racing career. <laughs> <laughs> oh, probably much more so. Um, only um, I've, to such success as I've had of, um, as a forensic psychologist um, is um, marginally better than anything I could ever do on the racetrack. I can tell you I was perpetually last. Um, but anyway, uh, but to answer that, yes, uh, the nearest I can think of um, it would be the London nail bomber um, who took it upon himself um, to have some sort of pseudo mission to bomb London uh, and cause as much mayhem as possible. But he was definitely one of the predictions that the profiler um, made uh, was that he would be the one who sat quietly while others, because London, um, for those of you who weren't around at the time, London was in a state of terror because nail bombs were going off in sensitive areas. Um, and he would be the one who sat quietly with a smile on his face uh, while others were pontificating, well, he's got to be such and such, he's got to be, and they'd have no idea it was him. So it's his little private world, his little fiefdom that um, he can um, get off with, basically. Oh, and has the satisfaction of knowing that no one knows Absolutely. about it, that it's and a secret. Absolutely, and that he's more superior. Um, and uh, I do mean more superior, so levels of superiority, but he's more superior because he has the inner knowledge. And so the trick there was to let him sing like a canary when he was interviewed because he would want to talk all about it. But um, as I understand it, uh, Walt, in episode, uh, sorry, series six, um, may not have the opportunity to do too much talking. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for that. Now, I want to uh, move on to um, Paul. Um, Paul Virag is a scriptwriter and also an actor, and um, his most recent film, which is out now, which I'm, I'm sure you've, you've probably read about, is The Face of an Angel, which tells the story of the um, Amanda Knox trial. Um, but he's often written scripts involving science and um, has become a, uh, something of a, of a, of a go-to person for um, commissioners who want to have um, science in drama, and he did physics at, at university. So we're going to talk about the... the um, the use of the science in Breaking Bad dramatically, but also more, um, more generally in, in TV, drama and film. Now, it's set out very clearly from the start that, that he's a chemistry teacher, and that seems to be quite uh, central to the, to the plot and, and part of his identity. But how essential was that? Could he have been an English teacher or a physics teacher? Well, uh, um, I mean, it is, and rightly put up as one of the greatest television series that's been done. And um, the reason is, is because it is a damn good story. And um, when you're looking to put together a damn good, good story, it's a little bit like chemistry. It's a bit like putting together the best ever kind of, you know, uh, meth molecule that you can do. And you're looking for a lot of things to all play into the story. Um, so if you look at the series and you look at the way it's put together, um, you know, just the locations on their own are fantastic. The cinematography we're talking about is beautiful. Um, I think originally it was going to be set in California, but uh, due to uh, the tax break, they moved it down to New Mexico and uh, to the area that it's shot in. And, you know, you can't imagine it anywhere else, that kind of bleakness and, uh, the, you know, the, uh, the heat and the, the dust and obviously the references to the kind of Wild West aspect is all there. Um, obviously, the casting of the actors is, uh, is fantastic. And actually, the story, basically the story of a, a man who um, discovers something wrong and then realises he has nothing to lose and... 
and is going to go off and uh, do something world. It's not a particularly new one, um, but it's one of the best, that's for sure. Um, and then on top of that, what they've managed to do is to find some way of embedding in the story the science, which has become a big thing in kind of recent last 10 to 15 years, something we're all kind of quite familiar with. And chemistry works so well because with all these things, when you're looking to play into the centre of the story, you're looking for often for allegory. So you're looking for a way of um, uh, using... Uh, the modus operandi, possibly the central character, as a way of reflecting other aspects. So, for instance, the chemistry is great because, A, it's all about structure. You know, Walt's life is very structured at the beginning. I think that's fair to say. Um, and, in fact, I think in the first series, even in the first episode, he gives an explanation about chemistry. He says, what is chemistry? Chemistry is about reactions and change. And, it's all, and you know, some of them can be explosive, and everything that's said there is a way of kind of using an allegory for what will happen to him as a character. And that carries on throughout. I think there is, uh, to use your... Is it Chiral when it's mirror image? He does a speech later on about Chiral when he's obviously a little bit in trouble. I think it's probably episode three or four, if I remember it rightly. And he's talking about thalidomide. And the thalidomide uh, molecule, one side is a perfectly good, uh, reasonable uh, drug for... Um, uh, stopping morning sickness, and on the other side, it causes birth defects. And at that point, he's a little bit kind of in two minds about where he's going. Is he going to kill the guy in the basement? Is he going to, you know, become a meth dealer? You know, and it's all about that. So, and if you think about other subjects and trying to put them in there, it wouldn't be as good. And with a lot of um, subjects that have uh, uh, a, a scientific aspect to it, Dexter's quite similar. Again, it's a guy who's got a kind of uh, a scientific knowledge, got a skill. He's a blood splatter scientist. But, of course, he's a serial killer as well. So, you know, you can see there how they've used that kind of dualism to get in there. And does the fact that he's got that skill that Jesse hasn't got allow him to always be the one in authority over Jesse and to, to manipulate him or lead him on? Absolutely. And, you know, what you've got then is two great characters. You've actually got two great characters from kind of, you know, literature down the ages and, and from, you know, kind of various religious sources as well. You've got the, the good man who turns bad, has a bit of a transition there. But also you've got a kind of great modern character, which is the uh, stoner slacker, who doesn't really understand anything apart from being stoned and being a bit slack. So um, the, the two of them together, you know, the oddball couple, which could be, you know, Starsky and Hutch or any of the, the great oddball couples, you've got these two characters who, um, who are opposite but absolutely need each other to kind of carry on their stories. And if you, we've been talking about what's accurate and, and what isn't and how, you know, the sourcing of the thorium dioxide might have been a problem that that was never mentioned. Does it matter how accurate the science is? Does it matter whether crystal meth could have been blue or, or not been blue? Well, I think it does, up to a point, because the bottom line is that you need to... I don't think, you know, particularly with the age of the internet, so we all go and check, don't we? Oh, I've done, I've done what, does it? You know, I think it does... It, it needs a level of accuracy, and to be honest, most writers and most people making uh, television programmes and, and uh, uh, films will try and go for accuracy. Within um, real life and real life stories, there is always a kind of uh, natural emotional mathematics almost, if we can bring that into it as a bit of maths. Um, and I think 
they are more surprising than stuff you think you can make up. I mean, you know, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Arthur C. Clarke and um, uh, Stanley Kubrick got together and said, well, let's work it out. Let's see what it would look like. Let's see what a space station would look like. And that template for science fiction films it, you know, it's unbeatable. It's gone all the way through to uh, things like uh, the Matthew McConaughey film that was out. Was, what was that Interstellar, wasn't it? Interstellar, yeah. yeah. So that's always gone all the way through. So truth is really useful, actually, in storytelling, mm. up to a point. Uh, <laughs> and at that point, you know, basically, you've got to show Walter White, who is not in the real world, it's a screenplay, it's a television series. You've got to show him to be the mean-ass mother, you know, that can cook this stuff up. And so you've got to find a way of delineating that, you know. And they're going to be sitting there and going, oh, that looks like glass, doesn't it? I mean, you know, well, what are we going to do with that? We'll make it a bit blue. Yeah, blue's great, that'll be great. Everybody will recognise that. And instantly you've got it and you have to have very, very quick, uh, you know, recognition in television series, you know. People there go, yeah, yeah, it's blue, it's the good stuff, it's the good stuff. It's a little bit like, it's like in ER. You know, ER was kind of a bit of a breakthrough series, I think, in television because, you know, they really did go for, it was very factual and very accurate and you know when somebody's you know and they were using lots of technical language and i think it was actually quite complicated they were going you know uh, the audience going to understand this but you know when somebody's running down a corridor and they're going get the you know 20 milligrams of benzyl methanate and you're going yeah get the benzyl methanate <laughs> what the hell i don't know what the hell that is but the guy's dying <laughs> Uh, and didn't they use, didn't they, um, Dave, didn't they use deliberately the chemicals that the actors could say? Yeah, there were a few <laughs> examples where uh, they certainly chose a reducing agent, which was mercury, it was an aluminum-based one because they could say it and they couldn't say the alternatives. They ran them three, four different reducing agents for how to reduce pseudoephedrine and the one they liked uh, uh, was the aluminum-based one. That's the one that Walter could say. Yeah. As an actor, I would definitely. That is, you know, quite often, you know, particularly in police series, you know, there's usually some goddamn piece of whatever you've got to say and you just go, oh, God, no, really. And I think in 2001, there's the, there's the weird bit of hyper science that he's talking about to mission control. And it's the only bit of dialogue from any film that that actor can remember. And it's, it's about a minute and a half and he can rattle it off because he, he just spent like days only learning that bit. <laughs> and how much as a scriptwriter will you insist on the, on the science being accurate? I mean, do you, do you get times where people try to completely just make it so it would be ridiculous and then do you say that's, that's too far? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I know what the game is. So, you know, and I know the game is to be entertaining, to be honest. So, you know, there comes a point at which you just have to kind of stop. You know, you have to stop on real life. A lot of the film scripts, even apart from the science that I've done, have been real life stories. And even in those, you kind of go, because everybody wants to see, you know, I did a film about Ian Jury, uh, who was a punk uh, rock star in the, in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, there just comes a point when actually you just have to take a good story and actually at that point you have to stop worrying so much about uh, the facts and you try and do a kind of a truth which is you know actually slightly different and are you finding that science is popular with the people commissioning drama for, for TV now? Do they, do they want it? I think so. I think there's been a real kind of uh, shift. Uh, I mean, I would qualify it with, by saying that there isn't a necessarily a huge amount around at the moment, but, you know, things like Breaking Bad are good examples. I mean, the, what there always was before was science fiction. 
You know, it was Doctor Who, there was Star Trek, and those things have always been there, as have the medical dramas. But as they have gone along, they have got more and more technically accurate, I would say, to the point where, you know, I mean, I think on things like doctors and scrubs, they go through so many diseases. They have massive bibles they call them of kind of diseases they use doctors which goes out like used to go out like five times a week or something ridiculous i mean they had i saw the list they have done every single disease every <laughs> disease with bereavement disease that disease with bereavement plus you know the mother gets oh god on and on, on but then something really odd must have happened probably about 20 years ago or maybe it's slightly less that the csi stuff started coming in and that's really that really kick the arse up kind of television accuracy because number one it's popular and number two you didn't have to understand it you know you just knew it was exciting I mean you know and the development of the techniques in that and and an additional thing kind of on the, like, the storytelling side is that then then they felt like there was going to be a moral judgment you know DNA was going to solve it you're always going to get your man and then the uh, the joy was always about how he got away with it or didn't get away with it um, so there, yes, there's definitely been a lot more interest in science-based stuff, partly because we all have it all the time. You know, you know, very few people in this country or any of the uh, English-speaking countries don't have access to a computer, internet, uh, a phone. So we are all interfacing all the time with a level of technology that wasn't true uh, 40 years ago, 30 years ago. Um, however. Um, there is always the slight, would this series get commissioned over here would be quite an interesting question because uh, pr- you might have a bit of difficulty. There might be a bit of a questioning about whether the audience would be able to uh, nominally get it. Um, uh, though I think that's probably changing the, the, the series and without kind of picking on certain series, but there was a style of detective series from a few years ago, which was a little bit kind of little English village and somebody gets killed and it's the vicar did it, you know. That sort of <laughs> television has <laughs> definitely been replaced even the last five, six years by quite dark stuff. You know, Broadchurch is darker than stuff mm. that was around before. But they were very brave as well, weren't they? Because sometimes they would have an entire episode would just be Walt and Jesse in one room. And then well, others, there'd be masses of action and adventure, completely different. You never knew quite what you were going to get in a single Well, it is, it is fascinating. I mean, you know, I mean, the really interesting thing about it, actually, beyond the science, is, is the science of screenwriting. And that basically, you're always looking for the great molecule, you're always looking for, you know, some blue crystal meth uh, in terms of screenwriting. Uh, and there are some basic molecules benzene rings and that you can kind of stick together and it comes down to basically family it comes down to uh, psychological issues and it comes down to death right if you've got all of those one way shape or form then you've got a hit series and if you look at any of them (laughs) it's true well you look at star trek i mean you know the enterprise is basically a family i mean house walks into a hospital all those characters are his family but the best families are of course the ones that are real families and so in this, there are relatively few characters, particularly for American television series. It's not like The Sopranos, with uh, large numbers of uh, extraneous characters go off and other, other, other adventures. Um, and what you then tend to up, end up happening, what tends to happen, is they have very, very long scenes. Very unusual. Um, I counted probably in the first series, I reckon there were 
you know, a 15-minute scene was not unusual. And that is very unusual in television anywhere because, A, of the ad breaks, you know, that is, that's like end-to-end, -end, you know. It's kind of like nothing else went on in between. Um, and it's, it's pretty unusual because that is a third of your episode will be just a bunch of people sitting down talking about, uh, you know, what has cancer, but you know all their stories. And are there certain things that people commissioning drama don't want from science? Are there certain types of science they do want and certain, certain bits they don't? Does it have to be easy enough for certain types, certain subjects? Well, I mean, I think at the end of the day, the allegory thing is great. That's the one that always gets us where, when stuff's going to be made, or when, it, when, it, you know, when I get in the door and I get, you know, and at least a kind of, oh, it's you, it's you again, is it? Um, <laughs> you know, there is always something that you're offering up. I mean, the point of drama and film is to talk about where you are now and the times you live in now. The stories are all the same. As I say, you know, Walt's story is not an unusual story. There's, you know, examples of that all the way from, you know, uh, you know, Macbeth is, you know, a pretty good guy at the beginning, you know, and goes through the same kind of moral, continual, you know, little bit, little bit of badness, backtrack a little bit, yeah, two steps of badness, one, you know, just goes on and on like that. Um, so when you go in now, you know, people are looking for a damn good story and they are realising that people can take, you know, a level of sophistication, I suppose. But at the end of the day, you're looking for allegory, you're looking for a way of using whatever your character does um, to, uh, to highlight his kind of emotional state as well. Are there any science topics that don't work? Are there any science topics that don't work? I don't know. I mean... <laughs> Every, every, every place has an audience, that's for sure. So, you know, I mean, the sci you know, some of the science fiction stuff's incredibly, you know, in-depth now and uh, is a long way from kind of Doctor Who and kind of, you know, uh, sonic screwdrivers. And, I mean, there is some... I suppose if it goes too complicated... The bottom line is if you lose that family, you lose those human relationship mm -hmm. things, then uh, that's not going to work. You know, you have to be hooked in to the people. And then the other things, you know, an episode of Scrubs, I was watching an episode of Scrubs with my daughter the other day, and, you know, it was all about what the characters' issues had, and each one of them had a disease to cure, you know, and it was kind of... So it was quite easy to see how those, those things would tie up... Uh, I would like to think there wasn't, and I would like, you know, I mean, mathematics has been done. I would have thought that would be the most abstract, but, you know, mm. it's been done as well. And Vince Gilligan wrote Breaking Bad, but also, of course, made it. Uh, would that happen here, or scriptwriters roll slightly differently in, in, no, in the that, UK for how it's done? That would be almost the, uh, one of the key differences. Um, I mean, it's getting a lot better, but the Americans have a thing where they basically, the writer, so the guy who sat in his loft on his own, have a loft, you know, for maybe two years, has written the Bible, knows all the characters, has them inside out, is the guy who sits on the set, chooses the actors, says who the directors are, and, and it seem, would seem like logic to me. Bitter writer. Um, <laughs> bitter writer gets over himself and realises that we don't have the budgets they have, so, you know, they need a certain level of security over here and... Uh, um, not all writers, and I can attest as an actor that, you know, not all writers are necessarily, uh, you know, uh, socially capable of doing this. I've, I've seen them coming across the set towards him, and I think, he gives me a note, I'm just going to kick his ass. <laughs> um, so that's my bell, so <laughs> that's obviously your fight. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think, um, yeah, 
And would they, how much would it have been planned right from the start, how to get through all those six series? I mean, I remember getting to the, when, uh, at the end of series one thinking, what on earth are they going to do next? They've done so many things. There's all, it's, so many things have gone wrong. What, what's go on earth going to happen? And yet, of course, it was, went on for longer and longer and longer. Well, you know, but the advantage of using kind of uh, um, uh, having kind of large scene counts you don't actually go through that much <laughs> plot. You go through quite a lot of story, but you actually, relatively within the series, nothing moves particularly. I mean, it's the sort of thing that you would have, you know, Tuco would be in episode two, or, you know, <laughs> even one. I mean, you know, you'd kill the guy, you'd get on, you'd have Tuco at the end of episode, you know, you meet Tuco at the end of episode one, and then you're into it, and then you've got a whole gap of, like, four episodes at the end. So the really clever thing about it, the really engaging thing about it, the reason it's gone on is because they've taken... All the science, so the chemistry, they blended that in. I mean, there was a great scene where, oh, what's the, what's the woman that he's in love with who's married the other guy? Who, they got the company. Gretchen. Gretchen. Isn't there a scene with Gretchen when he, he sits down with her and they're trying to work out the chemical composition of a human being? Isn't that right? And there's like... 2% missing the soul. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. You see, that's, yeah. that, that's, that's, that's crystal meth to a writer because you're thinking, <laughs> oh, that's great, that scene. That, and you absolutely write that scene, you know that no matter whether you get passed on, whether it goes to another, another broadcaster, that scene will always stay. Nobody will cut that scene. <laughs> Would you like to have written Breaking Bad? I'd love to have written Breaking <laughs> Bad. <laughs> I'd love might. to have written Breaking yeah. Bad. Yes. I'd love to be Vince. Yeah. Yes, well, thank you very much for that. I want to open things up now to the audience. I've got some more science questions to ask, but I think other people might have um, questions too about any of these things, or the psychology of it, um, or, or the script writing, or the science, any of them. We have people with roving mics, and I know there are people way up there as well, so wave a lot if you've got a question and you're up there, please. Yes? Could you wait for a uh, mic to come up? There's somebody at the top there. Uh, somebody's got one up there. Brilliant. Hello. Yeah, I'm, I was quite glad that you brought up the company at the end there because I was thinking on the psychology side, the extremity of the collapse from self-actualization route to the negative side. And I wondered whether the acceleration of that, you think maybe due to the the loss of the company by selling it early on and then rise of his own empire and then being able to sort of try and recapture that? Um, the answer is, uh, I've got bright lights in me, so I think you're about there. I knew you were there. Oh, sorry. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, the answer um, uh, to that is it's, it's very much possible, but um, what doesn't quite square with that is that my understanding of it and what I saw was that he wasn't particularly bitter about the other ones making all the money um, in the initial phase. That all came later. But I can well understand that that would feed into um, his bitterness and disappointment that um, the, uh, the woman and her husband who took the idea and made all that money, if, if this is all on the, if this is all correct, that is, um, I can well understand how that would feed on forwards um, uh, into his desire to make it on his own um, in the time that was left for him. Um, and it's no accident uh, that he tended to uh, get his um, way forward in the one thing that he was an exemplar, a specialist and expertise in, uh, was chemistry. Just as uh, the true life example, except it wasn't Tesco's or Sainsbury's, I 
totally differently from that, um, that the method of redress um, in order to get the money back was related to the illness concerned. So there's, there's oftentimes a very close thing in it. So I think you're, you're on the money. Interesting. Other questions do, do wave? Yes, there's somebody just there. Um, in the event that the, the, the police had a computer with a lot of compromising material on it, would it be possible for me to uh, drive a van with a huge magnet up to the police <laughs> warehouse and wipe all the data off the compromising computer? That's probably for me, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's for um, you, Dave. So I'm a chemist, not a physicist. Um, no. I, I think for me that's one of the least believable scenes in the show. I think getting the power on the magnet, uh, there's a few studies where physicists do maths, which I'm not very good at as a chemist, right? And you can calculate the number of coils and, and the magnetic fields that you're going to get out of the thing and what that could be expected to do. And the distance away from the hard drive to the magnet was never going to be enough to wipe the hard drive. Because you can damage hard drives with magnets. That's standard science, because they're based on magnetism, the way a hard drive works. So a strong magnet will damage a hard drive. But the specifics of the example, the distance was too far away. Then, of course, that's not how the computer got damaged. It was damaged because everything fell down, and the computer just got, got broken, in essence. And there's some plausibility in that. I mean, the room was full of metal cages, I suppose, which would help in terms of the destruction of the room. But that's the one scene of all that <laughs> I don't buy in Breaking Bad. But then I'm not a physicist, like I said. And, uh, but, but for me, that, that, that wouldn't quite, quite work. It's still not as bad as the worst ever science scene I saw on TV, which was in Torchwood, which was a chemistry <laughs> scene. I know the writer. I won't name them. Um, <laughs> there wasn't anyone here. Um, <laughs> But where they wrote a scene where somebody was dying on an aeroplane and they made a, a remedy, which was quite a complex chemical remedy, out of bits and pieces they found on the aeroplane, particularly in the aeroplane toilet, and then injected him with it and saved his life all in the period of about 25 minutes, including... Um, it was just a shocking scene. As a scientist, you just watched it, and it was incredulous. It wasn't on that level of badness. Um, but that's the, that was the one scene that didn't quite ring true for me. And so do you find you do mind, know. then, if the science is wrong when you watch things, even if it's good drama? I think uh, as long as it's believable, which the vast majority of Breaking Bad is, then I'm perfectly happy to suspend that 10% of disbelief where I think it wouldn't quite work like that, as long as the foundation of it is correct. But when it's total nonsense, like you're going to inject someone with some mm. dirty magnesium, some aluminium that you took out of an airplane toilet that you use as a catalyst with something that the pilot had in his lunchbox, I mean... <laughs> the thing was ridiculous, and, and then I suspend my belief, right? Yeah, yes. Other uh, questions? Yes, there's somebody just here. Oh, and I'll come to upstairs up there afterwards. Firstly, thank you for a fascinating um, discussion. It was one of the best I've, I've ever heard here. In terms of the screenplay, one of the, the most interesting parts is looking at the redemption of Jesse Pinkman, who starts mm -hmm. out initially on the downward slope. And I, I suppose he's... he's gets to a point where Walt overtakes him on that downward slide and, and Jesse almost bails and starts to become um, biophilus. You know, he starts to, to love life. The question would be, um, Julian, are there any sort of examples where, where you'd realise either in a, a crime partnership 
or a situation where somebody who thinks that they are really bad actually bails out and says, I'm, I'm not as bad as I really thought I was. Is, is that sort of a genuine situation? I think the um, answer to that is in the, in the left-hand corner of that triangle that I showed you. Um, that, that is where uh, Jesse lives, uh, in that area. He isn't driven downwards or upwards and drives his parents to distraction because all he wants to do is to get out of it and out of his head and all the rest of it. Um, inevitably, if you have two uh, people who are working as uh, partners, supposedly um, uh, fulfilling mutual needs for a common aim, if one of them is unreliable, then if, if one of them's on a downward path, a downward trajectory, the ruthlessness with which they will um, get back. And yet, I think I'm right in saying that on several occasions, uh, Walt Senior um, variously comes to the rescue of uh, Jesse and has some sort of sympathy with him. So there seems to be some sort of level before we get to the complete ruthlessness. Um, and uh, so... Uh, in, in my experience, though, um, marriages of criminal behaviour very quickly um, uh, come asunder because there's too much um, greed underpinning it all. Um, and uh, we only have to look at famous cases in uh, British criminal history where that has happened, where it starts off that they're all sundry and then somebody gets the green eye about something and then, well, it all unravels very quickly usually ending in death of one or both. Charming. Yeah, I think it's interesting. <laughs> you, look at, you look at Jesse and Walt, and, and both of them have different addictions, right? That dopamine, which is a, such a similar molecule to crystal meth, is really at the heart of a lot of their behaviours, I think. And Jesse's addiction is to crystal meth and drugs at various points during the series. It turns out that his addiction is probably far less harmful to him than Walt's addiction to kind of power and, and control. And, and that's a far darker path, actually. And it's interesting, they're probably both driven by the same chemical in the brain, the dopamine response that you get from feeling good about doing those things. But it, it turns out that Walt's motivation for it becomes far more dangerous to him, ultimately. And Paul, it's quite key to the plot, isn't it? The, the, the relationship between the two of them and how it does move around at different times. Well, actually, in, in actual fact, all the characters are slightly um, morally compromised, you know, I think, uh, even in small ways. I mean, obviously, Hank beats the living daylights out of, uh, you know, of, of prisoners. Mm -hmm. um, uh, his wife is Marie, is it? Uh, yeah. yeah, sorry. Uh, she, you know, uh, what's the, the... I can't... What's the episode with the... The tiara, that's yeah. right. You know, so everybody's given something, and obviously Skylar at the end. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, in very, yeah. very difficult uh, water. Um, but certainly, as far as Jesse and uh, and Walter concerned, they 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 do a kind of weird little dance where they kind of rotate round each other. And I mean, at the end, you know, Jesse obviously comes out of it well, and Walt decides just to go for oblivion. Um, but all the way through, I think the script writers have sewn in the possibility that Walt is always trying to do a good thing you know mm. he doesn't he doesn't kill Hank you know he actually um hasn't set Jesse up when he goes when he's coming to meet him uh when Hank's uh, got hold of Jesse you know he some guy's waiting there looks like he could be an assassin but then he's goes down he's playing with his kids so all the way through they're playing with what our expectations are
Mm. And keeping us on side a bit with Walter. I think you have to sympathise. You have to empathise. Well, I mean, that's been the big debate. The big debate is, you know, can you sympathise with, um, uh, you know, with Walter White? And um, I, I think the interesting thing is, the more human you keep the devil, as it were, uh, the, the more it, it makes it complicated to let him go and just see him as a bad person. And that is a sign of a sophisticated drama when basically you can show you know, uh, something that would normally be considered to be pure evil uh, in, say, mm. tabloid newspapers, but actually looks as perfectly human, depending on which end of the, you know, telescope you're looking mm. from. Mm. Now, there was somebody with a question up there. Yes. Hello. Yeah. Hi, how are you doing? Um, I have a question for Mr. Screenwriter. Sorry, I forgot your name. Paul. Paul. Um, <laughs> hello. Hello, hello. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Um, there's a great scene on Breaking Bad where there's a pizza on the roof, and I read that that was by mistake. <laughs> and, um, and there's something similar in um, The Wolf of Wall Street as well, with the whole, um, I can't remember his name, but he's doing the whole tapping of the chest, Matthew McConaughey. And that was also brought, brought about by um, Leonardo watching him do that before, while he was warming up before a scene. And he, was, he told it to the script writer, and he's like, oh, yeah, let's put it in the scene. <laughs> and, uh, and later on in the movie, he had that... Um, this, um, this scene where it's a very powerful scene where the whole office is doing the same thing. And that was just purely by, purely by coincidence. Um, so as a screenwriter, do you leave spaces or some maneuverability for um, situations that can occur that you would like to put in? Well, uh, we... Uh, maneuverability. Uh, well, the maneuverability is the fact that the, the script is only 50% of the... It's not right writing a novel. That's the bottom line. A novel, it's complete. It's you, the reader. They, the, you know, if you've done a good enough job, they can make all the pictures in their head. Screenwriter, it's in my head. I write it down in a kind of, you know, a script form, which is quite a... Actually, quite a difficult thing to read for people to understand. But obviously, you know, people in the industry are very experienced. Actors are very experienced. And... If you've, got a good, if you've got a good enough story, I mean, the bottom line is about trying to get the level which the actor has to jump off as high up as possible, um, you know, to make the story as convincing as possible, the characters as rounded as possible. And when people know they're in a good series, like at the end of the first series, you know, they must have all just turned to themselves and gone, oh, my God, that was great. Give me some more of that. And so, you know, chances are they would have just all, you know, it's a collaboration and so, at the end of the day, yeah, Matthew McConaughey does his little warm-up thing and, and Leo, um, you know, gamely copies it and says, you know, it's in there and it's a great scene, you know. And the screenwriter often gets the credit, you know. But that kind of makes up for the times when, honestly, we get a load of, <laughs> a load of rubbish slung us the other way and, you know, they've cut, you know, purely good scenes and you know, all the actor's not that good and doesn't do a good job. But at the end of the day, when you're in a good story and you're in a good show, you're in a good film, you know, everybody kind of runs with it and they come up with great ideas. And actually, it's the job of the actor to get inside that character, to fill it out, because it is really... Very, it's just a few lines on a page, really. If the writer's done a good job, it gives you every key you need. But the actor still has a job to do. They don't, they're not just all, you know, not just automatons. Mm, I never thank was. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Sorry, it was a, a question for the professor, actually. It was about the lily of the valley. Mm. Uh, he makes the poison out of the lily of the valley. I didn't know if that was... I've Googled it and got several different answers. So <laughs> I've got a definitive answer tonight, oh, please. No. Welcome to the internet. Yeah. Uh, no, it's, it's correct. It is a toxin. It's related to the toxin that you get out of the foxglove. It's a very similar... Chemically, it's a very similar thing. 
Um, it's so Walt uses the lily of the valley to poison the little boy, Brock. That's, that's right. To make so it look like it's And ricin. he makes it look like he's been poisoned with ricin, and he does that. It's probably his lowest moment, because it's one of the few times that you know, he really tries to manipulate Jesse and make him do what he wants by doing something really dark that is going to affect people that Jesse loves. I think it's probably the blackest, one of the blackest moments of the whole he show. He does let his girlfriend choke to death. That's well. pretty black too, but, yeah. but that's an, that, that is also an inaction rather than an action, which oh. as a viewer you watch and feel slightly different about somehow. For me, it was, although that one was more, this one was more hidden, it was a direct action. He had done mm. something to actively, you know, poison a little seven-year-old kid. Um, and it, it's correct, it's poison, it's related to foxglove. It would have similar symptoms to the ricin, which is what he was trying, trying to mimic with it. Um, and it is a, a known poison that is treatable. It's something that if you, like if you go into hospital with foxglove poisoning, they have some idea of antidotes that they can use to deal with that. So that's a completely realistic scene. I've got another poison question as it's well. It's the berries of the lily of the valley that contain the active ingredient. And I've got, a, I've got another poison question. So when, when um, Fring, the you know, chicken shop man, takes that drink to the swimming pool, a bottle of drink, and he poisons everyone around the swimming pool, and he drinks a bit himself to prove that it's okay, but um, then goes and is sick straight away. And he, Could you really time that so that it wouldn't... He's a little skinny guy, and the, the big fat guy <laughs> drops dead about a second later. Could I you mean, really do that? That's... that's I mean... It's good we have a screenwriter here because the one area where science and TV screenwriters have to come to some kind of accommodation with each other is on timelines. You know, CSI always had the classic issue that analyses yeah. that would take weeks to do in a forensic lab <laughs> will be done, you know, in half an hour while someone's making a cup of coffee. And, and as scientists, we just kind of have to sit back and say, that's okay. We understand there's a drama that has to be written. I think it's feasible to do if the timeline is just extended out a little bit beyond what was shown. But for the real dramatic tension, him walking out of the house and everybody keeling around dying makes a fantastic scene, right? I mean, yeah. I think if you just stretch that in your mind and think maybe he came out and 20 minutes later people were beginning to feel poorly and didn't know what it was. It, it, it's true, it, that could be done, uh, I think. And again, it's, it's, it, it comes back to that thing that it's accurate enough science that I can buy it, and the timelines and things, you have to make it a good drama, right? Mm. Yeah, mm. it's the difference between, you know, facts and truth, actually, and, you know, this, this, you know they are, these are television programmes, they've got to be done a certain amount of time, and actually there is a truth there, you know, a little bit kind of, yeah, this happens, you know, and it just makes it, you, know, you have to keep the drama going, otherwise, it doesn't matter how good the science is, nobody's going to watch. Mm. And, of course, Fring is... Seriously ill after that. You yeah, know, it takes after him a he while. does that, yeah. it takes him some time to recover from that. Mm. So he w it wasn't without consequence. Mm. Mm. It's high risk, yes. And you have the microphone there? Yeah. Yes. How difficult do you think it would have been for Vince Gilligan to decide what to do next? And how do you think he's doing with Better Call Saul? Oh. <laughs> I haven't seen that, actually. Has anybody seen it? Is it good? Great show. It's brilliant. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's a great character, isn't he? I mean, you know, and he does it absolutely brilliantly. I think, um, you know, almost of all the characters, you could look at it and go, that's a, that's a, a bolt out, you know, that you could uh, move to something else. I don't know. <laughs> it's tough. I mean, God, honestly, I'd love to have that problem. <laughs> <laughs> what to do next, says Vince. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I mean, you know... It, it, when he, if you've got that much power, then you should keep trying to do good things because you know there are there is you know there. I mean, we get some great television over here, but it's not all great coming out of the states. So you know, I think um, uh, we would be nice to think that he goes on and does something maybe in a completely different vein. Mm. Other questions? Yes, there's somebody in the middle, just there, and then there's somebody over there. 
You know the explosion, like in the hospital. How how would that work? Which aspect of it? Like when Gus's face gets like blown off. Uh, <laughs> 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 well, there's all sorts of ways that, in terms of the explosion itself, there's all kinds of explosives he could have used. The bit that I've seen it's the one where he rings the bell, yeah, yeah, and sets off the explosive. I mean, I think the the key issue is how you rig the charge to run from the bell down to the explosive and make it work. I don't think there's particularly a problem so much around the explosive itself. There's a hundred ways of chemists blowing things up. Um, <laughs> it's kind of tricks of the trade, really. Um, but uh, how, you, how you would rig the charge from the bell, and, and he doesn't have very long to do that in reality, uh, to set that up. Um, but I, for me, there's no big mystery there. Any standard explosive would pretty much do the job, rig a charge down to it to detonate it. Um, this is for Julian. Uh, a lot of people have noticed over the course of the series that as Walt kills people, he takes on the personalities of like the people he kills. So like, for example, um, when he kills the, his prisoner in the basement, he gives him a sandwich and has cut off, and the prisoner likes the um, crust off. And then Walt, as the season goes on, like Walt starts eating his sandwiches without the crust. Um, and it, I was wondering um, how plausible do you think that is, and is any time like that sort of thing happens in real life? That's so observant. That's impressive. <laughs> Very much so. Um, um, it's in psychology. It's known as introjection, uh, and that means you take on, for whatever reason mannerisms of somebody else so typically it's seen in bereavement so if you lose your partner and uh, she's forever leaving the toothpaste cap off or the light on when going to bed or something so that person then does it personally i think it's pushing it somewhat um in the context of uh, walt senior um and i've not noticed it in offenders um uh, so i i wouldn't have thought so but uh, as uh, was said, I think uh, extremely observant. I should go back and have another look. <laughs> did you say there's other examples as well? Um, yeah, Gus Fring. Like once Walt, Walt kills Gus Fring, his he becomes more power orientated and tries to uh, grow his. Oh, there, there I could yeah. see it. There I yeah. could see it. Uh, that's that's different. But cross cutting. <laughs> <laughs> Not common. <laughs> Yes, there's somebody right in the middle, just there. Thank you very much. Hello. Uh, this is a question for Dave Smith. Um, thank you for a very lucid explanation of the chemistry of uh, making crystal meth. <laughs> I enjoyed that very much. The, um, there was a <laughs> Don't do it at home. <laughs> there was a th you made a throwaway line at the end, which I was really fascinated by. You said, if you make the let's call it the left hand in Anchima, that was the crystal meth. Mm -hmm. You said the right hand one was Vic, Vic yep. Inhaler. Yep. Um, is they are the, was that, that wasn't just a throwaway line. It would, you know, the, no. the contents of Vic Inhaler are the other in Anchima of crystal meth. Yes. Right, That's not a throwaway line. Yeah. That is completely correct. It's, it's a camphor base, camphor smelling. Well, that's some of the, there's many ingredients in a VIX inhaler. Some of them are active, like the camphor things help open up your airways and so on. And, and, but there's a number of ingredients, but one of the key actives is 
the enantiomer of And it's an active ingredient. Yeah, it is active. Thank yeah, you very yeah, much. Yeah. It is. <laughs> it's, interestingly, not, not active like crystal meth is active, but I mean, that's also one of the reasons why a lot of these over-the-counter remedies get banned for Olympic athletes. So it's not that things like Vicks Inhaler are going to improve your performance, but actually it's that the testing labs that they test the urine samples through simply detect the mass of the molecule. And if things are mirror images, they have exactly the same mass. So actually when they run their quick analyses and look for the fingerprint trace of crystal meth, which would be a banned substance for an athlete to use, Vicks inhaler looks exactly the same. So you'd suddenly find that every athlete would be having Vicks inhaler all the time if it was allowed to do that and to say it was Vicks inhaler. So they banned the Vicks inhaler for athletes to use on the grounds that they simply can't easily and quickly distinguish it from crystal meth. And there was somebody with a question up here. I'm also a bit curious about the journey that Skylar went through. In your experience, I've forgotten your name, the psychologist who's been very Julian. interesting. Um, the wives and partners of people who have found out to be quite heavily involved in all sorts of criminal activities, do they tend to go through the same sort of journeys? Because she went through quite a lot of changes from personality types, from being really very annoying and controlling to start with. Yeah, I mean, I would have gone all sorts of paths away from her. She's amazing. But um, to very quite, um, yeah, still actually quite controlling at the end, but in a different way. <laughs> I like Skylar. People are so mean about <laughs> Skylar. Um, well, it's such an unusual uh, case. It's difficult to think. Uh, but it, we have really two uh, types of wives or partners um, in the experience of FBI research, for example, uh, you can get the ones who are completely oblivious, as she was initially, and then gradually get suspicious, and then finally manages to, um, when he's going under, I believe he said something about uh, which telephone, which gave rather the game away, and, and, and so on from there. And then it's, oh, well, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, but there doesn't, and so on like this. But all of that is fairly... Well, I was going to say with the FBI. So you've got the ones that use what um, really are fronts for the criminals. So they have a respectability. But this is a very different situation. Um, and he, if anything, was trying his best, as I understand it. Correct me if I'm wrong. I realize I'm in, with a lot of aficionados here. <laughs> right, right down to the crust cutting. <laughs> uh, so, um, but as, forgive me if I'm wrong, uh, but I, I understood it that um, she knew absolutely nothing about it, but it wasn't because he was wanting, in the initial stages, that's the critical thing, the motivation, because he was wanting to conceal it from her for any other reason. He didn't want her to know about it, rather than using her as a front. It's a very different situation from the typical FBI uh, reason for not telling a partner what you're doing. Dave, I've got a final question for you. I don't know if this is really a question for a chemist or not, but is it possible to stick a he severed head on a tortoise and make it stay there, do you think? It's <laughs> a kind of materials chemistry question. Depends what you glue it on with or stick it on with. Um, I'm sure there's a way of doing it. Okay. I'm sure there's a way of doing it, but it's not something that I practice very often. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, we can ponder on how you do that. But um, in the meantime, um, thank you very much to um, Paul, Julian and Dave and to the RI for letting us discuss Breaking Bad for the um, whole evening because um, it's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you.
That's it for this month. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode and you'd like to support our work, head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the Royal Institution. You can donate as little as $1 a month and you'll get access to exclusive content, early releases and digital freebies. Thanks. <laughs>